Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the Everyday Politics Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Ethan Campbell, and this is a podcast about the kind of politics that affect you in your everyday life. And just so you know, listeners, the following will be the format of the podcast. We're going to be discussing the history of the policy issue, where it's been, and what events have shaped uh, where it is now and what's happening with it. And then we're going to talk about the current status of the issue, look at some news articles, and see whose everyday life it's affecting. And then we're going to talk about the future of the issue, where it's going, and what the future holds. For the first episode, we're going to be discussing a very important issue uh, that doesn't really get a lot of attention. It's called eminent domain. So eminent domain is the riderability of a federal, state, or local government to take away a private citizen's land for public use. This is something that has been part of the United States since the very beginning. Of course, I'm talking about the United States Constitution, and specifically the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, which is also known as the Due Process Amendment. On the surface, the concept of due process is a pretty easy thing to understand. It provides a set of protections uh, to citizens uh, when the law is being applied to them and when they're a subject to the law. And so in the United States, this takes the form of the Fifth Amendment. So we have protections like double jeopardy. You cannot be charged the exact same crime twice. Uh, It provides protections against self-incrimination, so the police can't force you uh, to incriminate yourself in a crime. Uh, Even when they're questioning you, you can't be um, held in contempt of court, and you can't be charged with obstruction of justice uh, for refusing to answer questions uh, regarding, uh, you know, a crime that you may, may or may not have committed. And the last one here that we're really interested in is the uh, provision that requires the government to give just compensation for the seizure of property. And this is the last clause or the last provision of the Fifth Amendment, and this is what uh, sets up eminent domain. And that clause reads, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So basically what this is saying is that Uh, It is okay for the government to take land. It is expected. It is something that the government needs to do uh, in order to govern properly. However, uh, it is not to be taken without offering the citizen or party a just compensation or monetary payment for that property. When the United States Constitution was drafted in the 1780s, James Madison and his buddies had enough forethought to know that the United States was going to be changing a whole lot. So they wrote in a lot of flexibility and room for interpretation in the uh, Bill of Rights, which was the initial uh, amendments that were part of the Constitution. Of course, I think you can see where this is going. The Fifth Amendment was certainly not spared from this high, high level of ambiguity. And so the takings clause has spun off about four or five major Supreme Court cases, depending on how you define major. And in case you want to do your own research, the three big cases out of those five are Hawaii Housing Authority versus Midkiff, Lucas versus South Carolina Coastal Commission, and Kelo versus the city of New London. For the purposes of this podcast and our discussion of the history of the takings clause and eminent domain in the United States, we're going to be talking about the most recent and most relevant case, uh, which is Kelo versus the city of New London. So to give you some background on Kelo versus New London, uh, there's this woman who lived in New London, Connecticut. Her name was Suzette Kelo. And at the time, 
the city of New London was very economically downtrodden, a uh, very high unemployment rate, um, crime, uh, the city didn't have very much money, uh, things of that nature. So you have the city that is in dire need of a economic renaissance uh, in the early 2000s. And here comes Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. And they enter negotiations with the city to build a brand new state-of-the-art uh, product production facility. So it would be making pharmaceutical products. And it would employ thousands of people. And it would just be this great, great thing for the city. So Pfizer talked to the city and they found this perfect little spot for the uh, pharmaceutical plant to go. The only problem was that poor little Miss Suzette Kilo's house was sitting right on top of the plot of land. And at this point, the city of New London initiates their eminent domain powers, uh, makes a compulsory offer to Miss Kilo to sell her land at fair market value uh, per the Fifth Amendment and uh, is claiming that this is a public taking because of the excessive amount of economic uh, development and the uh, large number of jobs that the plant would um, bring to the city, that this is a public taking and is the same as a uh, taking or a, a comp compulsory purchase uh, of someone's land for the use of uh, you know, highways or parks or fire stations or municipal buildings or something of that nature. Uh, that it basically serves the public in the same way that those sorts of, that kind of infrastructure would. For those of you that are just absolutely riveted right now with Miss Suzette Kilo's story, I'll go ahead and skip to the very end so you don't have to wait. Uh, she loses her land. The Supreme Court rules that the city of New London is justified in the taking and that they have the right to compel this sale of Miss Kilo's land. So Kilo was a 5-4 decision, which means the nine-person strong Supreme Court was split right down the middle with one swing vote to decide in favor of the city of New London and against uh, Miss Kilo's appeal to the Supreme Court. In his majority opinion, Justice Stevens relies heavily on what he calls the rational basis test, which means that it is not the takings mechanism which has to co pass constitutional muster and be that public use but it just has to be the end result. So the mechanism in this case being the gifting of land to Pfizer Pharmaceuticals uh, for use uh, in the construction of this, this plant that would, that would provide for the public good. And in the case of Kilo, the Supreme Court decided that the end result did pass constitutional muster. It was a public use because it was going to uh, purportedly provide the jobs the economic development boost and the boost that the city needed as far as things like tax revenue. Writing for the dissenting or minority opinion here, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor states that this decision strikes down long-held limits on constitutional uh, government power. Justice O'Connor writes, under the banner of economic development, all private property is now vulnerable to being taken and transferred to another private owner so long as it might be upgraded, i.e. given to an owner who will use it in a way that the legislator deems more beneficial to the public in the process. O'Connor continues, To reason as the court does that the incidental public benefits resulting from the subsequent ordinary use of private property render economic development takings, quote, for public use, is to wash out any distinction between private 
and public use of property and thereby effectively to delete the words for public use from the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. So on the one hand here we have Justice Stevens who is applying the rational basis test as he's calling it, uh, which means that it is not the takings mechanism that has to pass that Fifth Amendment constitutional muster of the private or the public use, uh, but it is the end result uh, that has to pass that. And in this case, the end result is a very clear public use um, in that the Pfizer plant is going to create jobs, it's going to boost the local economy, and it's going to increase uh, tax revenue for the city. And on the other side, we have Justice Sandra O'Connor, who is completely disagreeing with Stevens here, saying that this decision might as well erase the public use requirement from the Fifth Amendment because it is blurring, if not completely destroying the line between public and private. And that if we go down this road, the government might end up being some sort of strongman for large moneyed interest, wherein they go down this slippery slope to use the law and the takings clause to take people's land and property uh, for, you know, what is essentially a very loose definition of public use. Uh, I love Justice O'Connor here. She says uh, that the Fifth Amendment's takings clause and the public use requirement of it uh, is reduced to hortatory fluff. Uh, so basically, she's just saying that um, it, it's just going to be with this decision, it's basically just going to be a um, suggestion that uh, the public that the taking be be for public use and not necessarily uh, a strong part of the law anymore. At this point, listeners, I want to go ahead and transition to uh, talking about current events and how the legacy of Justice Stevens, the Kelo decision, and the rational basis test uh, is faring in 2016. Uh, if you want to know more about the Supreme Court cases that we discussed, including Kilo, I'm going to link some resources in the description, uh, not the least of which is a really interesting resource called the Oyuz Project, or Oyuz, uh, and that is a project by the um, Illinois Institute of Technology Law School, I believe, uh, that lists uh, the summary of the case, uh, how the justices voted. They even have audio transcripts from inside the court since when they were started recording audio transcripts, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but great resource if you're currently in law school or taking classes that require you to have some sort of technical resource for uh, law papers and also if you're just plain interested. The current event I want to discuss in regards to eminent domain is this issue that New Jersey is having uh, over the construction of sand dunes um, on New Jersey beaches. And this information comes to us from a New York Times article published on, on October 30th, 2015, entitled Acrimony at New Jersey Shore over plan to build protective dunes. Uh, so Hurricane Sandy swept the east coast of the United States about three years ago. The townships uh, on the uh, coast of New Jersey uh, were some of the most hard hit. And part of that uh, damage, part of what caused that damage was these massive storm surges, which are basically just these massive uh, mini tsunamis, very, very large waves that come ashore and just wipe out homes, businesses, uh, just, just a massive amount of water damage is caused by these large waves. And a way to prevent this is by building um, sand dunes. And these dunes are meant to, uh, you know, physically block these waves from coming ashore. 
Now, New Jersey has started constructing these uh, sand dunes with the help of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, um, but they're having trouble completing them, and they do have to be complete. It has to be a continuous um, wall of sand or sand dune to to be effective in blocking these storm surges. And some of these uh, residents, some of these people that live along the edge of the coast are holding out uh, because they don't want massive piles of sand uh, in the form of sand dunes to be in their front yard, basically, and be you know obstructing their view of, of the ocean and also um, altering the landscape of their property. So now New Jersey is using their eminent domain powers to, uh, it's not, they're not forcing the sale of the land like in Kilo. What they're doing is basically just saying that we're going to now be building these dunes using heavy equipment on your front yard or, you know, your, the side of your house that's facing, facing the ocean. And uh, there, you don't have no, no legal recourse to stop uh, us from doing that because we're invoking our constitutional ability of eminent domain to do this. To give an update on the situation in New Jersey with the construction of these sand dunes, I found an article by the Associated Press on January 21st of 2016 this year, so just from a couple weeks ago, and it's basically saying that these people are still attempting to fight uh, the the uh, the construction of the sand dunes on their property, and it quoted one of their attorneys by saying, and I feel like this quote is really emblematic of how eminent domain is being used and received by the uh, people of the United States right now, uh, by citizens. The attorney representing the people uh, who are refusing to have the sand dunes built on their property uh, is uh, said, quote, the government's power of eminent domain is an extreme power that must be carefully and properly used because of the ramifications, end quote. So I just find it very interesting here how uh, even the government seeking this basic kind of like easement on these people's property in order to uh, build a sand dude that would in effect protect their own property as well as their neighbors in the city at large and the resistance to even this. I mean, they're not even, you know, taking their property from them. They're not even demolishing any homes uh, like was proposed in Kilo. Uh, they're basically just saying that we need we need this small amount of beachfront that you own to build these protective sand dunes. And this is being met with such strong opposition by by several groups of people. And due to this you know strong level of pushback, I really can't see anything like Kilo happening again uh, in in the near future, even though Kilo did set that precedent and it is still theoretically possible for an outside organization uh, private company to come in and take use the city's eminent domain powers to take land, that it probably just would not happen due to the enormous backlash that we're seeing from this basic taking here. As a somewhat amusing side note here, one of the holdouts uh, in the state of New Jersey who uh, is refusing to sell or give an easement to uh, part of his beachfront property for the construction of sand dunes has alleged that uh, three point there would be a $3.1 million uh, decrease in his property value uh, due to the construction of these sand dunes. And in response, the city of New Jersey has offered him $500 as compensation. So I just feel like this is a, this is perfect. It's, it's very emblematic of where that situation is at right now, uh, as far as the negotiations between the city of New Jersey and uh, those, those holdouts on the beach. So we're nearing the end of the podcast here, and I want to talk a little bit about the future of eminent domain and the applicability uh, of this podcast and this subject uh, to your everyday life. And I did some research about uh, the future of eminent domain and, and 
the direction that people, scholars think the eminent domain is going. And there are quite a few articles out there that talk about um, the direction that's going and how it might be used in the future. Uh, But it is just postulation, and I don't really want to kind of get into that. But I do want to say that it seems like uh, due to what's happening in New Jersey, uh, how this just this enormous uh, public outcry uh, due to the construction of these sand dunes that would ultimately have a very clear public use in physically protecting the property of the general public uh, is is just is just being uh, fought tooth and nail. I really don't think that we're going to see in the United States some corporations swoop into a town like they did in Kilo and take away someone's property to build their private you know production facility or whatever. I think the biggest thing to think about uh, for you in your everyday life with eminent domain um, could be possibly if you're looking to buy a home soon, uh, is it by a busy interstate uh, in a fast-growing city? Um, is it uh, between two power plants where they might be building a uh, transmission line? Uh, things like that. Those are things that happen every day uh, in the United States where eminent domain is used and is used very successfully um, to force the, the sale of land. Uh, for public use and public infrastructure construction. And that just about wraps up the first episode of the Everyday Politics Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Ethan Campbell. And if you can't tell, this is my very first podcast and my very first episode. So if you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, uh, feel free to email me. Uh, I'm at everydaypoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and I'm trying to make this podcast between 15 and 30 minutes uh, and somewhere between three weeks and one month um, release intervals. Hope you can listen next time when we're going to be discussing the politics behind school lunches. And school lunches don't sound very politically charged, but they very much are from what constitutes a vegetable on the school tray, because apparently that is subject to debate, uh, to where the food for school lunches is, is sourced Uh, It's all very politically charged. Uh, It all has a lot of special interest um, dollars in it, and uh, there's a lot to dig in there. I'm going to be joined by a special guest, a special co-host. Her name is Audrey. She has an undergraduate degree in health and wellness promotion, and she uh, is a certified wellness practitioner as well. So we're going to be delving into the everyday politics behind school lunches. So I hope you can join us next time, and thanks for listening to the Everyday Politics Podcast.